Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and the Trump presidency in 2017. I'm Freddie Gray and I'm Deputy Editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by Adam Smith, who is Senior Lecturer in American History at UCL. And we're going to be talking about Trump's Civil War gaffe and why and whether he thinks he's actually Andrew Jackson reincarnate. Adam, Donald Trump caused quite a stir this week when, in an interview with the Washington Examiner, he said, I mean, had Andrew Jackson been a little later, you wouldn't have had the Civil War. He was a very tough person, but he had a big heart. He was really angry that he saw what was happening with regard to the Civil War. He said, there's no reason for this. (laughs) Let's put aside the ridiculousness of historical counterfactuals. And can I ask you, what's wrong with Donald Trump's opinion about Andrew Jackson and the Civil War? Well, I, I don't know whether you can really dignify it with the with the term opinion. I mean, I don't imagine this is a, a terribly thought through historical perspective. Mm. I mean, he, he's clearly uh, come to the view that Andrew Jackson is the guy that he wants to sort of embody. I mean, he's put his Andrew Jackson's portrait in the Oval Office, hasn't he? And... I imagine that probably Steve Bannon has had something to do with this because Steve Bannon, who is a sort of intellectual in a way and certainly does know something about American history, is a great admirer of Andrew Jackson. So probably uh, that's where this is. This is where this is coming from. It wasn't clear from that uh, quote that you just read out that uh, that Trump realised that Andrew Jackson was dead for 16 years by the time the Civil War came out. Although I believe he later sent out a tweet clarifying this, acknowledging yes. that, that that Jackson had been yeah. <laughs> dead for 16 years. Or Bannon said but, that tweet. Out, or, or Bannon said, or somebody. But, yeah. but if the, if your question is if this was a, a history exam and the question was had Andrew Jackson still been a, still been president in 1860, the Civil War would have been averted. Discuss, is, yeah. if, that, if that's the question, then uh, no, is is the answer. Right. The, the Civil War was not something that could just have been resolved by a somebody with a, a strong the, leader. who read the art of the deal. Yeah. Uh, this is not something that could just be sorted out if only people had realised that maybe there was a mess happening. Yes. There were big structural factors at work here. People had been understanding this and expecting the apocalypse of disunion uh, since the revolution yes. uh, and had been predicting and warning it and, and Andrew Jackson was among them. But perhaps what Steve Bannon is thinking about is what's known as the, the great nullification crisis of 1831-32. Yes. Could you yes. tell us a little bit about that? It possibly that? is. I mean, so the nullification crisis arose because the state of South Carolina um, asserted the right to nullify a federal law. It was a, it was a tariff which... Mm. South Carolinians objected to because they didn't want reciprocal tariffs from Britain, uh, which might harm their cotton exports. So they asserted the the right for a state to nullify a federal law. Andrew Jackson blustered about this and threatened to send in troops to South Carolina if they didn't uh, back down. Yes. In the end, effectively, to cut a long, complicated story short, South Carolina did sort of back down, although the, there was a revision of the tariff at the same time. So, yes, that was a kind of strength. And in fairness to Donald Trump, it is true that in 1861, when Abraham Lincoln called for troops to put down uh, the rebellion, and, of course, the first shots of the Civil War were fired in South Carolina, uh, in Charleston Harbour, it's true that Andrew Jackson, the figure of Andrew Jackson, was mentioned. It was every, he, was, he was a figure that... Lincoln, Republicans wanted to emulate because he was seen as having stood up to 
the nullifiers 30 years before. He's an economic nationalist, like Trump wants to be. Jackson was a, a white nationalist, and he was, he was, an, he was an economic nationalist. And, I mean, everybody, I mean, it was easy in 19th century America to be in favour of um, protection because the United States was on the, the margins of the global economy and American tariffs did minimal harm to any other country and of course Britain was essentially regulating the the global economy and so what the Americans did in a sense had had few consequences on that battle over tariffs Jackson wasn't in fact particularly in favor of very high tariffs nor was he in favor of very low tariffs he just thought that what the South Carolinians were doing at that moment was an affront to his status as president and this is probably something that Trump likes in his image of Andrew Jackson this notion of this strong figure who regards himself as the singular embodiment of the whole people, the great body of the people was Jackson's phrase, that he's the only person who's been elected by the country as a whole, no individual congressman had, obviously Supreme Court members hadn't, mm. and so he could disregard the Supreme Court when it struck down, when it when it made rulings that he didn't like. And of course it's, it's also a sort of anti-PC vision of history, isn't it? Because I suppose everybody thinks thinks of the Civil War about being all about slavery. And of course, you know, the, the anti-PC thing to say is actually it was more about tariffs. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, when wherever you travel across the United States and not just in the South, there is this default thing. People say, you know, it, it isn't about slavery. And that's mm. partly the Civil War wasn't about slavery. No, no historian would, would agree with that claim. You know, people, you know, three quarters of a million people don't go to war to fight over a tariff. Mm. The Civil War did come about because of states' rights, in a sense, but this is a very paradoxical situation because actually what the southern states, the slave states, wanted was to control the federal government. They wanted a stronger centralised government in some respects because they wanted the federal government to hunt down runaway slaves for them. They wanted a slave code for the federal territories. So they wanted a stronger, much more assertive federal government in that one crucial respect to protect slavery. Mm. And they had been used to running the federal government despite being in a minority. And that was why the election of 1860, when Abraham Lincoln was elected as a Republican with only northern votes, with only votes from the free states, was such a dramatic shock, such a challenge to Southerners who'd been used to basically running the country. So they then resorted to this notion that they, that what they needed to do was to protect states' rights. But if you ask them, well, what states' rights mattered, there was only one. It was the right to protect slavery. There was yeah. nothing else they were concerned about. The only reason why they were interested in the tariff was because their economy mm. was based on slavery. So they had different economic interests. Everything comes back to slavery. Well, and for Donald Trump, everything comes back to great men. You know, the great man theory of history, I think, would probably be somewhere in Donald Trump's head, if not described as such. Yes, I'm sure that's right. I mean, Andrew Jackson was a kind of uh, a, a blustering populist with red hair, and there are obvious parallels with Donald Trump. There are an awful lot of differences as well. I mean, Andrew Jackson did actually win the popular vote twice, which mm. Donald Trump, of course, has not done. Andrew Jackson was born in... To, real poverty on mm. the frontier of Western North Carolina. Um, Donald Trump, of course, was not. And, and Andrew Jackson, um, although when he became um, president, um, was inaugurated in 1829, this was regarded by the silk-stockinged uh, East Coast elite as this extraordinary affront to the kind of dignity of the presidential office. But Jackson unlike Trump, had, had been in public service for all his life, uh, either as a, as a senator, as a, uh, as a uh, 
or in the military. Mm. Um, so he had been a public servant and regarded himself as being in the tradition of the founding fathers. Jackson certainly had a far, far better understanding of American history than Donald Trump appears to have. Yes. And in foreign policy, there's a a sort of tradition of Jacksonian foreign policy in American history. And I think, as I understand it, this is based on quite an aggressive idea about what to do about problems in the world. But it's also not liberal internationalism. It's not America has some manifest destiny to fix countries. It's if you mess with America, we will destroy you. Yes. I mean, that is often the way that Jacksonianism is used in relation to foreign policy. I mean, what's interesting to me, though, actually, is that the time the Jacksonians themselves, I mean, foreign policy, I mean, the the starting point for this was that foreign policy was not tremendously important. I mentioned American public life in the 1830s when Jackson was was president. But the Jacksonians themselves and those who were his young, enthusiastic supporters during his presidency and who later went on to have prominent political careers, and I'm thinking of people like uh, Polk and Senator Stephen Douglas, who famously debated with Abraham Lincoln in Illinois in, in 1858. These kinds of people had a very fully articulate, had a really articulated, well fleshed out view of the place of America in the world. It was based on the notion of American exceptionalism. And it was a view, and, it, and their view was that in time, American influence, which was to say the principle of popular government, would spread around the world. So when the 1848 revolutions happened, it was Jacksonians who celebrated the the 1848 revolutions in Europe. Even some of them talked about sending military aid. I mean, that never happened. It was never likely to happen. But it was something that people could imagine happening in support of oppressed peoples. That's very much what Bannon thinks about the world, doesn't he? Hmm. He thinks there's a sort of neoliberal elite tyranny and that little revolutions are happening all over the world and that America can support these in whatever way it can. Yes, there's well, um, that, that may be what Steve Bannon thinks. It's hard to apply that. If that's a general principle, it's hard to apply that to what Donald Trump has done or said in office over the last 100 days. That may or may not be yeah. what a Trumpite foreign policy looks like. I mean, I think... We really don't quite know. Would Andrew stage. Jackson have dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan to show China <laughs> that well, Andrew he Jackson, meant business over North Korea? Andrew Jackson was certainly very willing to use violence. I mean, yes. <laughs> when he was, uh, you know, when he was um, uh, fighting uh, Indians, Indians um, yeah. and he was certainly very willing to use violence. So, I don't, if the issue was, would he have been? Would Jackson have been willing to, as it were? press the button to use that kind of explosive force. Yes, I'm sure he would. Yes. And Trump, I think, likes that idea of himself as a a guy who's willing to do violence. Yes, I saw a little exchange with him and um, John Dickerson from uh, Face the Nation in which he said, in which the the president said, you know, I hate to use I hate to use violence, but he didn't really look as if he he meant it. Um, And although, unlike Jackson did come from military background, but Trump Loves men in uniform. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he he seems yeah. to get sort of. And he went to a military school. And went yeah, to a military no, he, school. Yeah. Although obviously he avoided actually then having to fight in, in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> so he likes the idea. He likes the play acting of it. Yes, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't like the reality. And of course, his 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 um, proposed budget would um, protect and increase American military spending. So that's clearly an important part of his of his worldview. I mean, that would have been something that, of course, would have been unimaginable in the 1830s. I mean, a standing army was the epitome of everything that the American Republic had rejected um, at the time of the American Revolution. The Jacksonian idea of a military force was a was a, a, a militia, a, a group of uh, patriotic 
um, white Republican citizens who took up their muskets in order to uh, defend their liberties. And that's a very different notion from the uh, 21st century idea of the American military. But actual Trump voters, obviously it's all very different, they do hark back to a sort of Jacksonian tradition of, you know, don't tread on me, that's very much a... That's absolutely right. And 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 I think that, I mean, you know, when you listen to the president being interviewed. It's very hard to think that he's being Machiavellian about this. I mean, I think he genuinely is very ignorant and I think he genuinely is very inarticulate and very unprepared. And I'm really, to an extent, that it's almost, that it's completely impossible to parody. However, in that, of course, he is, uh, and insofar as being like that gets historians upset and gets the the liberal media, in inverted commas, mm. upset, that, of course, plays well with his base. I mean, Civil War historians have been up in arms about this quote that we're talking about here, and they've, they've all been writing letters to newspapers, and many of us have been, you know, contacted by CNN. And, yes. <laughs> and I'm sure that that does absolutely no good whatsoever. I mean, of course, if you're an average Trump voter, you're not going to listen to Professor so-and-so from somewhere or other and think, well, you know, gee, I mean, I guess, I guess my man was wrong about the Civil War. I'm going to have yes. to rethink this. So he, his own ignorance is, is something of a, of a kind of badge. He, I, whether he understands that is a different matter. I mean, Steve Bannon has said this, hasn't he, in, a, in, an, in an off-the-cuff remark about about Trump, you know whether whether he realizes what he is being is quite a different matter. Yes, uh, I I don't know whether he realizes that he's as ignorant. I think he probably likes to think of himself as super smart and and super informed. And little does he know that in fact he's shockingly ignorant. Yes, well, Bannon and Stephen Miller, who mm. crafted the inauguration speech, yes, said that that was a specifically that was a Jacksonian yes. speech. Why yes. was that? Because I, he was talking about tearing down the elite in front of the elite. I, I think that's probably what they meant. I thought it was, I couldn't, I found it hard to understand why that inaugural address was described as Jacksonian. It was, it was the first inaugural address, and I have actually genuinely read them all. Mm. It was the first inaugural address not to even pay lip service to the American Revolution or the idea of America in anything like an uplifting way. That had never happened before. Mm. I mean, that it was, it was, that it was all about America first in a bold nationalist way mm. was clearly what I guess what Trump thinks and presumably what those two speechwriters, his two advisors that you just referred to, Miller and Bannon, clearly what they thought his voters wanted to hear. Um, but it was it marked a genuine departure from the the genre of presidential inaugural addresses, which are a real genre unto themselves. I mean, yes. if you if you looked at them, if you looked at a series of uh, of, of presidential inaugural addresses and you didn't know who was giving each one, it would be very hard to sort out to know which party the different presidents were from. Is it possible to argue then that Trump, despite his America first and make America great rhetoric, is perhaps the first American president who doesn't really accept manifest destiny in the yes, way that Yes, I think it is. Are. I think that's what's so interesting about him. And that makes him un-Jacksonian, you see. Yeah. And that's what makes him different from, especially from those Jacksonian followers who I was talking about, who who cheered the 1848 revolutions and and really genuinely believed that American democracy was was uh, was at the heart of America's providential purpose yes. on Earth. Um, Trump never uses that kind of language. He never talks about the last best hope of Earth. 
he he doesn't he doesn't he's probably never heard that language he doesn't understand it mm. um he thinks of the world it seems in much more brutal terms as you know deals being done he clearly respects force he respects strong characters that's why he lavishes all these praise on all these foreign dictators and on putin and so yes. on that is a power com- and money that's power and money and that is a complete departure from i can't think of another precedent for that in american history not as someone who's become president there are other figures who, who never came anywhere near it who talked in that kind of language but to actually have a president who talks in that way is, is quite surprising really genuinely surprising and do you think as sort of more and more american people realize that he doesn't have this vision of america which is still pretty deeply held in america that he will become more and more unpopular he's pretty unpopular already actually but he's, he's of all the many reasons why trump may become less popular now mm. um it's hard to know it's hard to perhaps separate out the different yes. factors that may cause him to to lose popularity but i mean that's an interesting question isn't it whether what he's done actually is to break a precedent and in the future other political leaders will no longer feel that they need to position America in that way, mm. will no longer feel that kind of sense of responsibility yeah. um, to... I mean, Roger Wilson talked about, you know, when, when he wanted the Senate to join the League of Nations, he said, we, it is of this that we dreamed of our birth, meaning from the revolution onwards, we dreamed of the moment when we could show the world the light. And he talked about the path lies forward, the light shines upon it. and 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 maybe... That and that inaugurated a hundred long, hundred year long period of American foreign policy, in which, to a greater or lesser extent, and obviously through the leadership of the period in the Cold War, the United States has always embodied that kind of vision. Maybe that's now come to an end, and maybe whoever succeeds Trump won't. won't do you think that's necessarily a bad thing? Because I mean, quite often the shining city on the hill rhetoric has got America into a lot of trouble. It has, it has, and it can be very difficult to to hear for for other people. And I think I think the difficulty is that what Trump's attitude and his his apparent attitudes towards NATO, though now apparently he's learned that hey, actually NATO does good, do a good job after all, and so on. But his his apparent willingness to withdraw is a problem, uh, so long as the United States retains the position that it does in global affairs, and we're still living just about hanging on to a world which was built after 1945, in which there are global institutions which have more or less run the global order because the United States have taken a lead in running them. Mm. And the concern that I would have would be if the United States unthinkingly, as it were, walks away from all of those commitments, there will be all kinds of unforeseen consequences. There's nobody else to step into that gap if the United States walks away. Um, so I think the consequence, although it can be difficult for non-Americans to hear all this language about the last best hope of Earth, in fact, if the consequence of American withdrawal um, from responsibility into an America first, let's all get behind a wall kind of mentality, if that carries on, I think the consequence will be huge global instability in ways that are very difficult to predict. Well, on that rather dark note, let's end it. Adam, thanks very Thank much for joining much. us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast anytime on iTunes. So please do and have a very nice weekend. Mm-hmm.